If a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. We'll read from verses 1 through till 17. Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, that you have risen, that you didn't stay dead. Lord, if you did, we would be without hope. Lord, I thank you that this account is true indeed and that it is uh, game-changing. changes the course of history, changes the course of our future, and indeed our hope. Lord, thank you that you didn't stay dead, that you rose again, that the tomb was empty, and that when Mary and Mary went, Lord, they didn't find you because you had been raised. Thank you, Lord, for the certainty we have and the confidence that we can approach your word with, knowing that it's true, knowing that it's words that you've spoken to us, Lord, knowing that not only is it true because we think and feel and want it to be true, Lord, but because it has uh, valid validity, Lord, that it has weight, that it's, that it's the truth by which everything else stands. Thank you for that, Lord. I pray that we would indeed believe that we wouldn't be like those who doubted, but, Lord, that we would cry out, hallelujah. Be with us this morning. Would our hearts be open? And would you speak to us? Amen. Uh, it's good to be here. It's good to be with the people of God. And uh, this is Resurrection Sunday. That's a kind of... See, Barry would say, praise the Lord. Yeah, it's Resurrection Sunday. This is an incredible day that close to 2,000 years ago, it's a historical day where Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. The text tells us it was the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And all the four Gospels that we have before us, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you're familiar with your Bible, record the events of this resurrection day. And they all start on the morning of the first day of the week, which is Sunday. They variously begin the description of events around the, the, the rising of the sun. 
These are amazing uh, accounts of our Lord because they, they're sort of like biographies in, in some ways. And they give us an account of his life with a real focus on the last three years of his life and uh, then a real focus on the last kind of few weeks of his life and his death and his resurrection. What I am so thankful for is that when you read the Gospels, you find that they don't end with the death of Jesus. If it was just a book about a human, it would be a book that would be written like no other book like you and I would have. Simply, oh, they lived and they did this, this, and this, and then they died. End of story. But one of the amazing things about the gospel accounts and about the reality of life is that the gospel accounts each add an extra chapter. And that extra chapter launches us, actually, into eternity. Because that extra chapter describes the resurrection of Jesus from the dead by the power of God. And those of us who put our trust in Christ as our Savior will also be raised from the dead, and so death will not be the end of our story. There's incredible power and hope that is bound up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is an eternal power and an eternal hope. As we come to the book of Matthew, all of the four writers give their perspective on the events around the resurrection of Jesus. And as you might expect, if you have four different people that are bringing together an account of a, something that happened, you are not going to get a, a, um, a uniformity. You're, you might get unity, but you're not going to get uniformity because they're all going to see it from different perspectives, hear it from different ears, maybe over different periods of time. And so what they account will be different angles and different perspectives on the same event. That's why there's differences in the accounts. There's no contradictions. There are things that are hard to reconcile, but there are ultimately no contradictions. And what we find in the case of the Gospels is these three things they all have in common. The first is simply the tomb was empty. It was, there was no body in the tomb. The second was that it was women who were the first witnesses to the empty tomb. And then the final thing that they all have in common is that Jesus actually came and met with his disciples physically in his body after his resurrection. And then there's difference of opinions, but those things they share in common. When you come to Matthew's account, there are a few things that he emphasizes that the other ones don't. Uh, particularly the, the visit of the angel and the earthquake and the attire of this angel that rolled the stone away. There's a supernatural reality to the description of the resurrection of Jesus. And it should make sense. Of course there would be a, a violent earthquake. Of course you would expect an angel to come in heaven that was dazzling like lightning and had white, white clothes on him. Of course you would expect that, that, that there would be people who would witness that, who wouldn't know what to do with that. And they'd be literally scared almost to death as all the guards were sort of rendered unconscious by this. Of course you would see a supernatural feet of strength as a single individual was able to roll away a very, very large stone and then sit on it as like that was nothing. There are supernatural things that accompany the resurrection of Jesus Christ because this is a big deal. We, we celebrate big deals, don't we? Like, like a lot of birthdays are just regular birthdays. But then we have birthdays that are peculiarly special birthdays. Sometimes it's a 40th birthday. Sometimes it's a 60th birthday. But we, all of a sudden, we sort of bring everything to bear on that particular birthday because this one matters. 
And so people come from all over the place. We, in, we invite friends and family. We have big, huge cakes. We, we might, we might um, celebrate into the night. We think about a 50th wedding anniversary. We think about graduation. Many of you have kids that have, are graduating or have graduated. Most of us have graduated. And that's a big day. It's not like any other transition from one grade to another. Transition from grade 12 to university or to life. And so we buy dresses and suits and we have limousines and, and it's, a, it's a big deal. Well, what would we expect with a history-changing, eternally-changing event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And so Matthew emphasizes the supernaturalness that accompanied this spectacular event of the raising of Jesus from the dead. But there's also something that's very normal about the way that Matthew recounts this. And this is where I got my sermon title from. As Matthew is describing what takes place on this particular day, there's this very natural, sort of refreshing, normal thing that takes place as Jesus um, uh, 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 comes to meet the women that have been sent to tell the disciples. He says to them, in the King James Version, all hail. And you think to yourself, really? Like, that's the way that he greeted them? All hail? And then some of them translate it, well, greetings. Well, one of the Bibles that, or the Bible that I use in my devotions, and this is what struck me about two months ago, simply had this. Good morning. I love that. Because there's something just natural. There's something supernatural, but there's something just personal and relational and familiar and calming about the fact that the risen Lord would meet the first witnesses with a simple good morning. And so Matthew adds a supernatural touch, and he adds a natural touch. There's five things that I just want to point out based on words or phrases from the text that we read, rather than sort of an explanation, just sort of five things that pop out as we read these verses. Well, the simple first one is, is simply the devotion that Jesus receives. This is kind of amazing when you think about it. Early in the morning, Matthew describes two Marys come to view the tomb. Days ago, they had watched Jesus be crucified and die on the cross, and it said they had been looking at this from a distance. And then they had been lingering, obviously, at the, at the, at the cross and the death of Jesus because they watched as his body was taken down from the cross and then they followed to the place where the body of Jesus was placed in a tomb and a great stone was rolled across the entrance and it says, and the two Marys were seated there facing the tomb. So when he was crucified, they just watched from a distance. After he had died and his body was taken down, they carried his body and they placed it in the tomb. And these two women simply just were seated there facing the tomb. And then we read in verse 1 of chapter 28 that as the ladies come on the first day of the week early in the morning, they simply went to see the tomb. It's a remarkable phrase that we can so easily just brush over. But we need to just... Think about it for a minute. What could they do? Why did they show up? There's not anything really that they can do because after all, they had seen Jesus um, be placed in a tomb. They had seen this massive stone be rolled over the tomb. And simply it says that they showed up. Likely they didn't have a lot of hope. As I said, they had watched their Lord crucified. They had watched him buried. And now they have come back simply to see the tomb. 
As they look on the grave, I wonder what was going through their minds. I wonder if they had any hope inside of them. I, I, I wonder if in the midst of this, they're just saying to yourself, you know, uh, we just have to be faithful to him. We just have to show our devotion to the Lord. We have walked with him these number of years. We have heard him. We have served him. We have provided for his needs, and they just wanted to be faithful to him. They can't shut off their affection for him. They're just overflowing with compassion and sympathy to the one that they had adored in life, and now they just adore him in death. Isn't this a common reality of the day in which we live? We see this taking place on roadsides as there are crosses that are set up and flowers that are placed around those crosses. And sometimes you might drive by and you'll see one or two people just sitting there. They're just sitting there reflecting on the individual that had lost their life there. If you go to a cemetery, often you'll go into a cemetery and you'll see people that go there and they're lovingly tending a grave. They're sweeping off the, the headstone or the gravestone. They take flesh, fresh flowers and they put them in. They maybe take a pair of scissors as my wife does sometimes when she goes and visits the tomb of her mom and dad and she trims the, the, the grass around there. And It's just this loving act of devotion and affection for the person that has passed away. I think there's a measure of encouragement in here for us this, this morning. It's to remind us that sometimes even though life can be dark, even though there seems to be little light that can shine on our way, even when there are times when it seems that our greatest hopes are shattered and we doesn't understand what's going on and we don't understand what's going on with our Lord, we can still demonstrate our devotion and our affection and our compassion for our Lord and Savior. They were devoted to Jesus. The second thing that we can see in here is the witnesses that Jesus uses. The witnesses that Jesus uses. Matthew leaves no doubt in his text, as the other writers do, that the first witnesses to the angel and the empty grave were women. And the words to them are, don't be afraid, go and tell the disciples. Certainly in the first century, this would have been really unexpected. Jewish contemporaries, we read as you go into the time, had little esteem for the testimony of women. Most would recognize, if you read about this time, that, that women, their, 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 their testimony wasn't received or acceptable in a court of law. This was also codified in Roman law of the time, and in broader Mediterranean culture, the same, the same took place. There was a limited confidence or trust in the testimony of women. You see, this is one of the reasons why I believe the story of Matthew, and I believe the accounts of the Gospels. Because think of this for a minute. If you were making up a story, or if you were trying to make a story a, a reasonable or acceptable to society around you, if you wanted to, to make your story have credibility, if you wanted to remove anybody's ability to undermine the story that you were making, if you were wanting to make a point, trying to prove a point, you would begin by using witnesses that everybody would look at and say, I believe them. And yet Matthew states brilliantly the obvious, the first witnesses were women. He's not making up the story. He's just telling it like it is. The first witnesses of the empty tomb were women. And by the way, the testimony of women wasn't accepted in the culture of that day. Isn't it strange that when God wants to provide witnesses to this eternally significant event, the resurrection of his son, he not only chose the first people that showed up, but they also happened to be women whose witness in those days was not accepted. Not unlike the witness of shepherds 
the witness of shepherds was not held, uh, held viable in a court either, and yet they were the first witnesses to the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus first commissions these women with declaring the gospel. I've been wrestling with this a little bit, or thinking it through wrestling, it's not the right word. But I was thinking about the witnesses that Jesus uses, and I, my head has been in 2 Kings for a little while for different reasons, and reflecting on the story of a young girl, a little girl, who happened to be a slave girl in a particular home. And she'd become a slave girl because a, a foreign king had sent the commander of his office, army into a raid into Israel. And in the midst of this raid, as they were pillaging the particular village that they were in in Israel, they happened to snag this young girl, probably from her family, from everything familiar to them, and bring her back as part of the, the um, proceeds of war, if you want to put it that way. And so it must have been an incredibly terrifying thing. I can't imagine something more terrifying than a young girl being ripped out of her family, being ripped away from her culture, being taken from everything familiar to her, and placed in a strange home. And yet God was with this young girl. We know that because the home that she ended up in happened to be the home of the commander of the army that went and stole her from her own country. And one day as her mistress is around the house, she recognized, she had noticed that her, her, the mistress's husband had a skin disease, a really bad skin disease. And she says to her mistress, if my master would go to the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his disease. I think, wow. Like, you could, you could picture this little girl thinking, I'm going to do everything to ruin their lines. I'm going to spit in their soup. I'm going to, you know, all these kinds of things that she could do to get back at them. And the thing in her head is, my God can heal my master, the one that stole me from my country. She had confidence in the power of her God to heal the skin disease of her master. The long and short of it was uh, Naaman went to Israel. He finally was instructed to go to the Jordan River to dip seven times in the Jordan River. And after a bit of convincing, he did that. And when he came up the seventh time, his flesh was made pure as a baby's. This little girl had borne witness to the power of God. You see, as we see this text, it's a beautiful reminder of how God communicates incredible truth. He communicates that truth through these two women. He communicates truth through a young girl that was taken slave. He communicates truth about Jesus Christ through you and I. We don't have to be politicians. We don't have to be rich. We don't have to be famous. We don't have to have a lot of influence in society. In fact, in fact sometimes that diminishes our testimony. Rather, God says, you, ordinary men and women, boys and girls, go tell about Jesus Christ. And as we go tell about Jesus Christ, people's eyes are open and their hearts are warmed by the incredible truth of the gospel. It's incredible the witnesses that God uses to communicate profound truths. This one being the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The third point from this text is worked around a single word. And the point is this, the people that Jesus restores. The people that Jesus restores. It's a subtle point, but it is a point full of incredible truth. You might have listened as Pastor Andrew read this text, and the angel says to the two Marys, go quickly and tell the disciples he's been raised from the dead, and he will meet them in Galilee. 
But when Jesus meets the women, after greeting them with good morning, he says, Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. You notice the switch in language? Brothers versus disciples. The angel says, Go and tell my disciples. Jesus says, Go and tell my brothers. And well, who cares about a word? What difference does a single word make? Well, I'm convinced that if you were one of the disciples, if you were one who had failed Jesus, who had forsaken him, who had ran off in confusion as he was being crucified, if you had denied him, maybe you were full of doubt as you, as you, you, were, you were reflecting now on these words, and all of a sudden the, the women said, but Jesus said, go and tell my brothers. And what astonishing kindness. What incredible intuition that Jesus would have had into the sorrowful, painful, hurting hearts of his disciples who had failed and forsaken him. Can you imagine what that must have meant to the disciples to have heard that single word uttered? He said, what? Go and tell my brothers. You see, what Jesus is saying in that one word is that the relationship that he had with them had not been destroyed. The relationship that he had with his disciples had not been broken. It had, it had not failed. It still stands because he calls them brothers. It says, though Jesus is saying them, this intimate relationship that we've had, this closeness that we've enjoyed, all of the times that we've shared together, it's not been dissolved or destroyed by your failure or by your forsaking. In other words, it's going to take a lot more for you to do to get you out of my grip than that. I think some of us need to hear that today even on this Easter Sunday. Perhaps the last time you were in church was on Resurrection Sunday. But this morning you find yourself amongst brothers and sisters. You know, we do know this, don't we, that sometimes our past can be such a weight on us. We can carry with us such a sense of failure and guilt that we doubt our relationship with our Father. We think that Christ will never ever smile on us again. You might have failed him miserably in some way and you just can't see the light and you just can't seem to see how you can ever make your way back into a relationship with Christ that how he could ever see you as anything more than some kind of distant relative. It may have to do with something that you've just done recently. There's some enormous failure that you've walked through. And you think to yourself, there's no way that I will ever get back into that intimacy with Christ that I once had. I don't think Jesus can ever again receive me with the same intimacy that, that we once knew. Well, you may need to hear this morning that Jesus calls you a sister or that Jesus calls you a brother, that it will take a lot more than your sin to dissolve the eternal covenant that Christ has secured with you by his shed blood on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. The fourth point is simply the problem that Jesus causes. 
the problem that Jesus causes. Do you know what the problem is? The tomb is empty. That's a big problem. And Jesus caused it of all the nerve. The tomb is empty. And immediately, a cover-up begins. There, there's so many reasons why this could have um, begun to spin out of control. And it all starts with a simple fact that not one of the guards that was there had the guts or the courage to tell the truth. And I suspect that the way that Matthew learned about this cover-up was much the way that we learn news today. And that after a period of time, some government official or some individual is tired with what's going on, and they leak a little bit of information. They, they send an email. Well, they didn't have email back then. Um, they send a clay tablet or something that has a record of what's going on. And, and so maybe one of these guards was tired of the lie and realized they had told a lie and came to Matthew one day and said, Matthew, I want to tell you the truth. I want to tell you what happened that night. Maybe one of the religious leaders, we know some of them came to put their trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe one of them came to Jesus one day and said, Jesus, I, I need to tell you what happened on that resurrection day. But Matthew gets the story and he records it for us. We read that the guards are now back to life. They've come out of their shock and they make their way back to Jerusalem with the news that the tomb is empty. They could have told the truth, but they come up with a lie. They made a decision. They designed to cover up. They accepted hush money. And this, doesn't this sound so familiar in the day in which we live? I could just launch a few names and issues, and I, but, but I won't do that. End of incident. It all goes away. And Matthew tells us that this became the dominant story now for, from the religious leaders. It had become part of Jerusalem lore now for many, many years. In fact, Matthew probably wrote the book around 60, 70 A.D., somewhere in there. And so Jesus would have died about 33 um, uh, A.D. So we've got maybe 25 to 30 years while Matthew is writing. He says this is still the dominant story in Jerusalem. So why write it down? Why write this story in the gospel, which is meant to assure us that Jesus rose from the dead? Why would Matthew include it? Well, I think in part it's because it was a lie, and Matthew wants his readers to know the truth. He wants his readers to know the truth about why the tomb was empty. In other words, for Matthew, it really, really matters that Jesus rose from the dead. And he, he didn't want to let a lie settle in there. He didn't want to let that dominate the, the, the media waves. He wanted to make people sure that they knew there was another account that Jesus Christ, in fact, was raised from the dead. Well, we say to ourselves, well, how do we know that Matthew is telling the truth? How do we know that he's not involved in some cover-up? You see, we need to know that, don't we? We, need to un we? we see this all around us in the world in which we live, don't we now? Particularly, what's the word that we've heard so often now? Fake news. Um, misinformation. You see, we, we live in a world now in which we hardly trust anything anymore. How many of you have sat and listened to the news or read an article this week and it outlined stuff and you just simply said, I don't believe that. 
we, we've, we've just come to the point where we don't trust anyone. We don't believe anything anymore. You know, we, we, I just read the other day that it, Facebook and Twitter and some of these platforms have various algorithms that determine what things rise to the top and what things go down to the bottom. And so they determine by people's viewing habits or by what they want people to know what you read first in your news feeds. And so what was the top of the news feeds back then was Disciples stole Jesus' body. And Matthew wants us to say, no, no, let me tell you what happened. So we need to ask, who do we trust? Or more specifically, can I trust Matthew? Now, I'm a pastor. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a believer in the Word of God. And so I could say here with all confidence, I believe Matthew because I believe the Word of God. I believe the Word of God is truthful. I believe the Word of God is inspired. I believe the Word of God is without error. I believe the Word of God has been translated um, perfectly to us through human instruments so that we might know the mind of God and the description of God on our history. And so I could say to you, well, I just believe Matthew because I believe the Bible is inspired. And I would be right. But not everyone here even this morning believes that. I know that maybe some of us are skeptical even about the Word of God. And you say, okay, well, you believe that, Paul, but I don't believe that yet. So let's leave the inspiration of Scriptures on the table just for a moment. And let's just look at the historical reliability of the document and the witnesses that are surrounding the empty tomb. This wasn't a secret tomb. End of Matthew 27 says the guards or the religious leaders were fearful, actually, that this might take place. They were worried that the place that Jesus' body had been buried, that the disciples would come and steal it. And so they went to Pilate requesting a guard and a seal. And so Pilate says, you deal with it. So they went and they put a seal on the tomb between the rolled rock and the fixed rock, and they set a guard over this particular tomb. So there was no way that it could be mistaken which tomb it was. Why do we believe Matthew? One of the reasons that I believe Matthew, uh, just from a historical point of view, is Matthew is writing at a period of time when most of the generation who had witnessed or heard about the resurrection of Jesus were still alive. They were still able to talk about the incident, to probably have met people who had actually seen the risen Lord. Or maybe they knew some of the guards and their families. Maybe they knew some of the religious people. But Paul mentions that during this time, there were 500 people who at the same time had seen the risen Lord. Many of the enemies of Jesus were also alive at this same time. And if it wasn't true, then Matthew's account would quickly fall apart. It would be destroyed by the supposed truth of the guards and the religious leaders. But it wasn't. Unlike the, the unlikely theory proposed for why the tomb was empty was the disciples came by night. <laughs> and you, you, you read this on face value and you think, Really? They had just fled a few hours earlier. Not one of them had stood with Jesus as he was uh, in his trial and as he was crucified. Every single one of them ran for fear. Moreover, grave robbing is a capital offense or was a capital offense. And if they wouldn't stand up for Jesus while he was a lie then what would ever convince us that they would stand up for him when he was dead? 
Where would they all of a sudden get courage when they had no courage at all during the time of his trial and death? Where would they get courage to all of a sudden now go and steal the body of their Lord? What I find fascinating is how did the guards know it was the disciples if they were asleep? <laughs> you, you read that. The disciples came and stole the body while we were sleeping. <laughs> all right, that will hold up in a court of law. But that's, that's, that's part of the, the story that was going around here. It's inconceivable that this group of guards would all have been asleep at the same time. They would have been tasked in order to protect that tomb. There might have been some that were asleep as they took shifts through the night. But it's inconceivable that every one of them would have been asleep at the same time. And after all, this was a huge rock, this stone. It would take many people to roll it into place. Do you think they wouldn't have heard as this rock grinded on other uh, granite uh, in its little trough? And that wouldn't have woke them up? For the guards themselves to be under such explicit orders, it, I, it's like guarding the president of the United States is into a difficult situation and they all fall asleep. Do you think they'd still have their jobs the next day? They would, have, they would have died. This was an executable offense. And yet, they go and tell Pilate, listen, it's okay, Pilate. And they paid the guards a bunch of money to stick to this lie. And everyone would have known that it was a lie. What is in, in this story that helps us think that maybe this is true? Well, we've already talked about the first witnesses who happened to be women. This would not bolster the credibility of your story if you were trying to make it acceptable to the general masses. Notice also what Matthew records in verse 17. These are words again that we can quickly blast over, but he says, and when they saw him, this is the disciples, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. If you're trying to make a case in a boardroom, you're trying to present a scientific paper in a seminar in university, how many of us would get up there and make our case and say, but you know, not everyone believes this. You know, there's a whole other line of thinking over here, and, 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 and we don't do that, do we? This is another reason that I believe Matthew, because Matthew is honest, and I think if we're here, there are some of us here today who, who still think, man, that is a man raised from the dead? I can understand how some of you believe it, but... But it makes sense if you tell me that some of them doubted. It just adds credibility, I think, to Matthew's story. So Matthew will tell you that some people doubted that if it was really Jesus they saw. Matthew would tell you that, you know, there's another story going around about why the tomb is empty. Matthew will tell you who the first witnesses were, even if that impacts the credibility of his state. Why? Because he has nothing to hide. Why? Because he wants to convince us that the tomb was empty. See, it does matter that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that is Matthew's point. The final point, very quickly, is the response that Jesus seeks. You find it twice in these words, once in verse 9 and once in verse 17. It says, the women, they came to Jesus when he said good morning to them. They came up and first notice it says they took hold of his feet. This wasn't some ghost. This wasn't some spirit. This wasn't some phantom. This was 
Jesus Christ raised bodily from the grave. It says they took hold of his feet and they worshipped. And then when Jesus comes to his disciples, it says they saw him and they worshipped him. That's the response that Jesus seeks from us to his resurrection. It's one thing to believe the facts. We, we can do that. It's, we, can, we can say, yeah, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I can look at secular sources. I can look at biblical sources. I can look at the rationale. And yeah, I, I think that there is no reason to doubt that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. But what are you going to do with that? It's not something that you can just stick in your back pocket as though it makes no difference for your present or for your future. You've got to move from believing in the resurrection as a historical fact to accepting the power and the benefit of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for you personally. To know that God can free you from the grip of death and give you everlasting life because Jesus conquered death. And so our response should be, as the people of God, to all of us, it should be to worship this one who is the divine Son of God, creator of the world, light of the world, life of the world, to fall down at his feet and worship him. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that on this uh, Resurrection Sunday, this first day of the week, we can reflect on this incredible historical account and not only reflect on it to know that it's true, but we can confess with our mouths and believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And as we do that, we will be saved. Spirit of God, would you work in a saving way in the hearts of many here even this morning? Would you draw those of us who have confidence in Christ as your Savior to worship him with greater vigor and strength? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.